Across New England, commercial businesses of all sizes rely on Eastern Bank. We help clients grow by being able to answer their larger loan needs and by offering innovative solutions, smart decision-making, and one-on-one relationships. From franchise financing to community development and asset-based lending, our knowledgeable and experienced commercial team deeply understands your business and the communities you serve. See how we can help you meet your business goals at easternbank.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. Filling in for Shirley Leung this week, I'm Brian Bergstein, editor of the Globe's Ideas section. Around once a month, I'll be coming on this podcast to host a conversation about artificial intelligence. I want to discuss the possibilities, but more importantly, I want to demystify AI by asking big questions about it and getting past the hype. You've probably heard that AI will make just about every human endeavor somehow better. But my first guest on this topic has been warning for years about the huge dangers of over-reliance on AI. Joy Bulamwini is a computer scientist with degrees from Georgia Tech, Oxford, and MIT. Through her research, she has shown that AI systems have gaping holes in their views of the world. They have racial biases, and they tend to make powerful institutions more powerful at the expense of people with less power. Recently, she was invited to advise President Biden at a roundtable discussion on AI regulation. And she has a new book out, Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. Dr. Joy Bulamwini, welcome to Say More. Thank you so much for having me. For all the attention AI is getting because of ChatGPT and other new programs, I'm struck by the many examples of AI failing and in terrifying ways. I can't stop thinking about people like Portia Woodruff, a woman in Detroit who recently found herself trapped in an AI nightmare. What happened there and how does it tie into your work? Yes, so Portia Woodruff was eight months pregnant and she was arrested. She had, I believe, six police officers come to her house, arrest her in front of her children, and she was uh, taken to a holding cell. Eight months pregnant, accused of a carjacking. I don't know anyone jacking cars at eight months pregnant. And she actually reported having contractions uh, while she was in the holding cell. And once they finally uh, released her, she had to be rushed to the emergency room. And this was because of a misidentification that came through facial recognition mismatch. And what is extremely frustrating about the situation is that it happened in Detroit, where in 2020, you had Robert Williams falsely arrested, also in front of his two young children held in jail for uh, 30 hours. They are both suing uh, the city of Detroit, which I think makes a lot of sense. There's absolutely no reason facial recognition should continue to be used this way, particularly by a law enforcement agency that has continuously arrested people linked to false facial recognition matches. So in the stories we've 
seen, at least I've seen in the press, is happening to Black people. And I'm curious, why, why is this? Why are facial recognition systems worse at recognizing Black faces? So the research that I've done and also the research done from the National Institute for Standards and Technology, NIST for short, shows that these systems work better on white faces, right? But they also work better on men's faces. And we've had studies that show that these systems not only fail African-American faces, but Asian-American faces, as well as Native American faces. Furthermore, there's research that shows some of these systems struggle on the faces of the elderly and youthful faces. I bring this all up to say no one is immune from facial recognition misidentifications. And yes, the research does show that people of color, Black people in particular, and Black women especially have a higher risk of misidentification. But even if these systems worked perfectly, if they were completely accurate and flawless, which they are not, we are then creating tools for mass surveillance. So there are dangers if it works and dangers if it doesn't. So in the book, you say you became a critic and an activist, actually reluctantly. You say you started out as a geek, enamored with the promise of computing. You thought technology could be apolitical. What changed? When I started the work that I was doing, I other people labeled me an activist. For me, I was a scientist and I was doing algorithmic audits. And these algorithmic audits were asking technical questions that had societal implications. So it wasn't with an activist hat that I decided to test out facial recognition technologies and gender classification. It was out of curiosity. When I started to realize that this had to go beyond the technical was seeing reports such as what we had from Georgetown Law with the perpetual lineup report that came out in 2016 saying one in two adults in the U.S. had their face in a facial recognition database that could be searched by law enforcement, right, without warrants and could be searched with AI systems that hadn't been audited for accuracy. So once I started to see that the technologies I was curious about were also being rolled out in the real world with consequences on people's lived lives, that's when I started to get activated and to start speaking out more about uh, these issues. Can you explain what had happened where you had to put a mask on in order for your webcam to register your face? Yes, uh, I was at MIT. I'd finally made it to my dream school. I was really excited. And I took a graduate course called Science Fabrication. So in that class, you read science fiction and then you build something you're inspired to create as long as it can fit the six-week deadline. So I decided to build this project called the Aspire Mirror, where instead of having a filter through a video camera, like on a social media app, you could have the filter on your actual reflection in the mirror. So I figured out a way to do that. And then I thought it would be cool if that reflection could follow you in the mirror. So to do that, I added a webcam and I downloaded software that was meant to track my face. Long story short, it didn't track my face that well until I literally put on a white mask. 
and the white mask was detected much easier than my dark skin face was. And that's what led me to start asking, is it contrast? Is it lighting? What's going on here? And then the research, I realized it wasn't just my face. This wasn't a one-off experience. It was actually a canary in the coal mine showing much larger issues of bias in AI that goes beyond facial recognition systems or gender classification systems. So in the book, you talk about this problem. You call it the coded gaze. You say AI sees the world through a coded gaze. So what, what do you mean by that? So you might be familiar with the notion of the male gaze or the white gaze. And so these ways of describing how those who hold power decide what's important. And so when we look at the coded gaze, it's a way of saying those who hold power to shape technology leave their fingerprints on it. And so their preferences, as well as their prejudices and their priorities are what's baked into the technology that the rest of us use because it's such a small group of people creating these systems. Okay, so there's been a lot of interest around a new kind of AI, generative AI. And this technology is different from the type we've been talking about. So ChatGPT and other AI systems that will create new content. There's a lot more data involved rather than just looking at, say, driver's license photos or criminal mug shots. You know, they're, they're trained on the whole Internet. Do you think the same biases, the same kind of coded gaze problem crops up just as much in this new kind of AI? There's evidence that already shows this. I really appreciate a story that came out with Bloomberg News. What they did was they took Stable Diffusion, which is an open source model of a generative AI system that makes images. And what they did is they used inspiration from my research, the Gender Shades Project, and they gave the system different prompts. So generate an image of a CEO, generate the image of a judge, generate the image of a janitor, generate the image of a terrorist. And what they showed was not only does AI replicate existing biases, but it actually makes them worse. So for example, with judges, about 30% of judges are women. When they ran the prompts, they found a single-digit representation of women. And so I think this is really important to keep in mind because sometimes what I'll hear, right, is, yes, AI systems are susceptible to bias, so are humans. This is on par with us. First of all, I don't think we're the best status quo. I do think we should raise the bar, have higher aspirations. But this is very concerning to see that it is actually taking us back. My conversation with Joy Bulamwini continues after a short break. At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com business. 
Member FDIC. So you founded something called the Algorithmic Justice League. What what does the league do and can anyone join? Anyone can join the Algorithmic Justice League. And what we do is we raise awareness about AI systems and their harms. We also hold tech companies accountable. And so when we see issues, we speak up, we provide empirical evidence. So what we're saying isn't based on our opinion or a feeling. We bring in the facts. We bring in the data. We also have an AI harms reporting platform. And so For example, we'll do campaigns like fly.ajl.org, where you can submit your stories of going through face scans at TSA checkpoints. We did tax.ajl.org. So people who were facing um, the use of facial recognition to access their basic tax services could share what is happening. And so we really believe in the importance of documenting and bearing witness to the AI harms uh, that are happening so that we can then use that to advocate for change. And that can be change in uh, company policy Uh, changes in the ways in which we decide what systems uh, are adopted by a school or a hospital. And I think it's also really important that we have a little bit of fun. You'll notice in uh, the work that we do, there's a bit of levity uh, to it as well. And that's intentional because this work um, is hard. So you recently were among a handful of experts who joined President Biden in San Francisco for a roundtable discussion on AI, AI regulation. How did that go? Uh, Do you think he grasps what's at stake? I was very encouraged after about an hour and a half at that roundtable because we were able to talk about not just the promise of AI, but also the immediate risk. And I brought two photos with me to that discussion. One was a photo of Robert Williams holding the Gender Shades Justice Award. He's somebody we call among the X-coded who's been harmed by AI systems. And another image was him with his daughters. And as I was talking about some of the examples that you mentioned earlier in the program uh, with President Biden, I could see that he was touched and he wanted to know more. He said, is the reason they were falsely arrested because they're Black? And is the reason because these systems don't work as well on Black people? And that became part of a broader uh, conversation. And so I am encouraged to see uh, the Biden-Harris administration uh, taking these issues seriously. I commend the release of a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. I think it's time to actually codify it into law. And so I am encouraged to see that the government is taking a look at these issues. And I think there's a lot we can learn from the EU AI Act, particularly with the provision to ban public use of facial recognition. And I do think it is past time that we have similar protections in the United States. What ideally would be in an AI Bill of Rights? One, systems have to be shown to be safe and effective in the first place. So what we saw with the false arrest of Portia Woodruff, the systems weren't even effective for what they were meant to do in the first place. Another component is that 
people, right, the American people, and it should be really everybody around the world, is protected against algorithmic discrimination. We already have evidence that shows that AI systems uh, can have gender bias when it comes to deciding which resumes are filtered out um, or not, right? So your opportunity shouldn't be choked by algorithmic gatekeepers that are biased against you. Another really important element is data privacy. We need comprehensive data privacy laws so that companies cannot just take data and do what they will without your permission and without compensation to you. We're seeing so much of this happening when it comes to generative AI systems and creators pushing back, right? Authors saying you can't use my copyrighted work to train your AI systems and the lawsuits are coming. Photographers also saying same thing, to train your AI image uh, generators. And another element that I think is really important that is part of this uh, AI Bill of Rights is human fallbacks and alternatives. I'll go back to the IRS and their use of a third-party vendor when it comes to accessing uh, tax information. What started out as optional then becomes required. And so at first it was, you don't necessarily have to use this third-party vendor. The next year, if you're creating a new account, the only option is to use that third-party vendor. And that third-party vendor in their terms of use say that when you sign up, you waive your right to sue them, even if your data is compromised or something negative happens to you because of the use of this system that is now linked to accessing a government service. I just want to make sure I understand that last example. So if people want to file their taxes online, the IRS has you confirm your identity with a third-party vendor. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, ID me. And so what is the flaw there? One, you don't have a choice. And so going back to the AI Bill of Rights, where you would have human fallbacks and alternatives, you are now compelled to use a third-party vendor and to submit your very valuable face data. You shouldn't have to submit your biometric information to have access to government services. What is the danger? We don't know what's happening with this data because we're using a third-party vendor. This third-party vendor, you know, works with other companies, work, can work with other governments um, as well. And there have been reported data breaches, right? And there's also misidentification. So... Part of what happens when IDME is used is they check your face to see if you might match somebody who's a suspect. Going back to Portia's example, you can be misidentified, right, and flagged as committing a crime you have not. And now this is linked to your tax information. And now it's on you to try to clarify it. The other issue we saw with people submitting stories to the Algorithmic Justice League about the use of IDME is it's inaccessible for so many people. Slower internet connections, webcams that are lower resolution. We had, uh, there was a story of a veteran, a man in his uh, 70s has served his nation, was trying to get access to his benefits and it took him months. So I think it's really important that we're not forced to submit biometric data and that you have a real choice. Following your work over the years, I've been concerned about the response that it sometimes generates. 
So a lot of AI boosters and tech company executives have responded to it by saying, ah, she's right. These systems have terrible biases. We have to fix that. We have to gather more and more data to develop systems without blind spots. And so what they're saying is, in essence, we need to solve the problems of AI with more AI. And I'm just wondering how we could possibly do that without violating people's privacy even more. So how, what, what's the best way forward on that? What I learned as I was doing my research was that I had very limited tools from what I'd been taught as a computer scientist to really think through the social implications of the systems I was testing. So the easiest response was, okay, we have biased data sets. Let's go get more data. We'll have less biased data sets. We'll have more accurate systems. This is looking at how the systems perform without questioning how the systems are used. As I learned more, right, and I also became uh, familiar with the negative impacts of things like facial recognition technologies, it wasn't just a call to say, let's make systems more accurate, but a call to say, let's re-examine the ways in which we've created AI in the first place. And let's re-examine our measures of progress because so far they've been misleading. They've been misleading because we are hearing that these systems are so advanced, yet poor Woodruff sitting in a jail cell eight months pregnant, right? And so I think it's really important that there's a socio-technical lens that's put on the ways in which we evaluate AI systems and that the immediate response isn't more tech, more data, but asking what kind of societies do we want to live in and should we even be making this type of technology in the first place? Alongside the activist work you've been doing, you've also referred to yourself as a poet, a poet of code. You're artist-in-chief at the Algorithmic Justice League. So what is the poetry of code? Uh, that's such a great question. So I'm a poet of code. I tell stories that make daughters of diaspora's dream and sons of privilege pause. As the daughter of an artist and a scientist, it's probably not so surprising. I sit um, at this intersection and the reason I chose POC, Poet of Code, is not just because we need more people of color in tech, though we do, but it was to get at the importance of humanizing what's happening with technology. And so poets at their best allow us to reflect on ourselves and reflect on society. And that's the work that we're doing with the Algorithmic Justice League, reflecting on what types of societies are we creating with the AI systems that are being made and what types of societies do we want and how can we move towards that? Is there another poem that you have in your mind that encapsulates some of these ideas? Probably the poem... La the poetic phrases that I return to most often are from my poem, AI Ain't I a Woman, when I'm thinking of what it means to protect what's human in a world of machines. And so in that poem where we have Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, misgendering iconic faces of people like Serena Williams, she has a lot of photos out there, Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, I'm like, yo, if you can't get Oprah's face, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. But one of the lines in that poem is, can machines ever see my queens as I view them? Can machines ever see our grandmothers 
as we knew them. And those lines get to the human connection that we have through relationships that I don't think can so easily be replaced uh, with AI substitutes. Dr. Joy Bulamwini is a computer scientist and founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. Her new book is called Unmasking AI, and you can look for an excerpt in Globe Ideas. Thank you so much for joining me on Say More. Thank you for having me. Say More is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Anna Kusmer with help from Scott Hellman and Abby Kanina. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Uzair Ahmed. Maggie Taylor is our marketing coordinator. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us online at globe.com opinion. I'm Brian Bergstein. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.